from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Welcome sports fans, welcome business fans, and welcome statistics fans to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We're here on Wharton Moneyball, here on Sirius XM Business Radio 111, powered by the Wharton School. Some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week on iTunes and SoundCloud. And, of course, this is our first show of 2018. There's been lots of sports going on over the last few weeks, but most importantly, What's not changed about Wharton Moneyball is that we're a call-in show. So if you want to join the conversation, tell us what caught your eye in either pro football, college football. There's a lot of tennis going on. There's basketball, lots of sports going on. Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We're also going to be tweeting a bunch of polls during this uh, telecast at at WMoneyball. And you can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. But first and foremost, Shane, hope you've had a good New Year's and have a happy 2018. Yeah, happy New Year to you as well. Yeah, well, it's a great time of year because there's lots and lots of sports going on. As a matter of fact, I even watched a little hockey, so we'll talk about hockey. I just, I Oh, wow, this is exciting times. It is an exciting time in hockey, but... I really have to start off the show. Obviously, we talk about what caught our eye in sports. For those people that have been listening to Wharton Moneyball uh, during the end of 2017, they have to know what I'm going to rail on to start our show. So my view is they don't need to play the college football playoffs because the national champion has been decided, in my view. It has. It has. It's been decided. They don't need to play the game on Monday. I assume that you uh, think Alabama is going to win the national championship? No, I'm not referring to Alabama, but that's a good guess. Well, I'm referring, of course, to... Had a 50-50 shot on that one. Right. And I'm not actually referring to Georgia either. I'm actually referring to the true national oh, champion. Oh, my goodness. Which is UCSF. UCF. Look. UCF. Yeah, UCF. Let me just comment for everybody out there, and I commented on this on Wharton Moneyball. And by the way... When I spoke to Cade Massey about it, as you know, he's got the Massey Peabody system, and of course, he did not give the them mighty much Auburn yeah, was at number not, six or seven, and UCF was a twenty-something. This is going to be a rout. Well, for those people that watch the game, UCF, sorry, Auburn was lucky only to lose by seven points to UCF in that game. It hadn't been for a couple of blocked field goals and other stuff. That might have been a seventeen-point victory for UCF. So we have a thirteen and zero UCF. We had them beat Auburn. No, wait a second. What are the two top teams that Auburn... Oh, they beat Alabama and Georgia. Yeah, you, mean, you, you, you know that the trends... There's no transitivity right. to def, you know winning and losing, right? Just because Auburn beat Alabama doesn't mean that UCF... And Georgia. And Georgia does not mean UCF would have... Some, if they'd made it in the playoffs, would have would have run the table. Okay. I could not agree with you more, but I just want to do my shout-out. And by the way, for those of you that follow us on at WMoneyBall, you'll know right when the UCF game ended, I not only uh, tweeted to at UCF underscore football and at Auburn underscore football that UCF was the national champion, but I wanted to bring up some statistical issues related to the UCF game. First, um, the first thing I wrote down, I'd love to get your comment on it is, it's hard to forecast with what's called low overlap designs. Yeah. In other words, the only team they played in common was Auburn. So could you talk to our audience a little bit here about, you know, if one could optimally design a schedule, 
that might allow comparisons. Because that's not how the schedule's developed. You play no. teams in your conference. If you're a UCF, maybe in the future you'll be lucky. Because, by the way, these power teams don't want to play you now. Because that's a, just another opportunity for a loss for them. But could you talk to our listeners about, like, we as statisticians, when we want to optimally design contests to make better comparisons, why low overlap's a bad thing? Well, I mean, it just sort of it, it it doesn't allow you to kind of norm the performance if you don't have any kind of comparable games in common or, or opponents in common, right? Um, I mean, the nice thing about I mean, that's essentially the the beauty of a balanced schedule is that you essentially play the same you know the same teams around the same number of times, and so that you know you've you've kind of taken schedule essentially out of out of you know out of the equation as far as comparisons go you can just go by wins and losses like in baseball for example but can't they, or close enough in baseball but can't the mathematical models maybe this is why of course UCF wasn't in the top 4 and yeah. should not have even been close to the top 4 don't mathematical models like the elo rating system which are you know a played b a has a strength yeah. parameter b has a strength parameter they're entirely designed to 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 take into account of the fact that you don't have a perfectly overlapping design because while a didn't play c B may have played C, or B may have played D, D may have played F, F may have played yeah. C. And the, uh, both the ELO models and the uh, and, and various kind of regression approaches do take uh, do try and basically take that into account and, and, and say, like, oh, if A plays B and B plays C, then we do have something to say about what would have happened if A played C. But, you know, they, there's a lot of uncertainty involved if there isn't much overlap. And as you sort of alluded to, the college kind of regular season schedule is almost designed to avoid overlap. I mean, it's, it's you know, mostly focused on within conference games. The relatively few number of out of conference games that are played are not kind of designed to try and, you know, kind of create that that comparison. If anything, they're designed to sort of, you know, prop up the power teams, as you as you mentioned. As a matter of fact, it would be great, Matt, if you could put up on our at W Moneyball, if you could put up a poll. Um, does UCF deserve uh, recognition as the uh, uh, college football national champion? Yes, no. That would be a great poll. And I hope all of our listeners go to our at W Moneyball, follow our poll, and maybe in the 930 hour, we'll talk about the results of that poll. The other thing I was thinking about was, so does this have implications for playoff design? So, for example, it's not even obvious, by the way, if there were eight teams, which, as you know, people are arguing mm-hmm. for, that UCF even would have been in that list of eight. I think they, I mean, by the ranking, they were 12th. The committee ranked them 12th. So if you took just the top eight, they wouldn't have even been in yeah. that, although it would have been hard, I would think, to leave off an undefeated team if you had gone I, to eight. I think I bet they would have sneak, sneaked in there if it was if it was a top eight but i i think a more general point is even if you expand the playoff stay which i i think would be wonderful because i think more playoff games would be better um even if you expanded that there we'd still be discussing some marginal case in the eight nine ten eleven twelve you're not going to get rid of controversy that way certainly i don't think well let me ask you a question you you actually brought up a great word which you know is the old statistician joke which is um you know we don't get paid to give point estimates we get paid to give uncertainty estimates you use the word uncertainty how much uncertainty is there in your mind now that if UCF, let's say on a neutral field in a bowl game, were to play Georgia or Alabama, that they could win the game? Like, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty because basically we only have one game worth of UCF playing teams in that kind of class of teams, right? And they, they did, I mean, 
Certainly they made a statement by beating Auburn and beating Auburn relatively handily. They made a statement that they maybe do belong in that conversation, but without without more games, especially regular season games against teams like that, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. You know what's interesting that you also brought up, and this we talk about as statisticians quite a bit, which is, you know, Let's imagine, you know, the one ranked team they did play this year and did beat was Memphis. Now, Memphis was ranked 20th. What you're pointing out, which is a great point, is how much would we learn if they played a bunch more number 20s? And your point, I think, is, and please correct me if I'm wrong, not much. Yeah. Like, we know they can beat all the 20s in the world. Yep. The question is, how would they do against the top five? That's, That's right. the relevant question for the playoff. Not if, oh, if UCF had played a bunch more teams like, you know, Georgia Tech or, you know, teams in the 20s. Well, we know what would have yeah. happened. They would have won those games. Yeah, and in terms of, we're relatively, in terms of uncertainty, we're relatively certain they belong in the top 15. In the country, I think. And, and and so them beating up on teams in the 20 to 25 range, rank-wise, I mean, good. I mean, I mean, to a certain extent, them losing to a bunch of those teams would change our change our opinion. But them beating 20, 25-ranked teams, that's kind of what they're supposed to do, given our beliefs about where they are. Them beating top five teams or top ten teams... That is that's a different story, right? And, and they just only, they only had one opportunity to do that, and they did do that. Well, what's very fortunate is that our at our eight thirty hour today we have uh, Stephen Godfrey, who we're going to talk to both about this and of course about the national championship game, which is coming up uh, next Monday. As everyone knows, Stephen Godfrey is a senior reporter at SB Nation. He also co-hosts of the podcast. Podcast ain't played nobody, so that'll be interesting to see since the. Uh, UCF did not play Georgia and Alabama this year. Yeah. It would be interesting to hear his reaction yeah. to how they might do uh, in that game. So, so my, let me ask you a question: What would you, if you if, if I mean you clearly think this is a problem, perhaps with I the do. design of the schedule? Would you favor something kind of like the NFL does, where you're kind of there's there's a, a structure like you know every team would play a certain number of conference games, a certain number of out of conference games, a certain number of maybe out of power games. I've actually thought about this, and so uh, the answer is here's a question I don't know the answer to. How far in advance do you? I know how far in advance they do schedule these games, but how far in advance do you have to? And here's what I mean by that. Imagine you said to yourself, okay. What we're going to do next season, next season, yeah. is we're going to start out the season just like they do in the NFL. Mm-hmm. UCF is going to play Auburn, Georgia, or Alabama the first week of the season. Let's call it week zero. We're going to leave open a slot in the college schedule for the top four or eight teams to play each other at the start of the next season. And so what I'm planning on doing, and I'm going to be, so I'm even being Bayesian in a sense. Yeah. I'm not, I'm going to use recency. Da- I'm going to use more recent data. I'm not going to play Alabama to play Notre Dame because Notre Dame was great 10 years ago. I'm going to leave week zero open for top teams from the previous year to show what they got in the next year. Yeah, That's no. how I change the schedule. I mean, I I, I think you, you you certainly as a fan that sounds very uh, as a compelling. Fan, I have right? no idea whether schools would want to do this. I have no, as you know, I mean, it has I, nothing I, to I, do I, whether UCF wants this. I, I think the kind of traditional powers were probably uh, I, I, w- I would opposed. say would oppose just because, as you sort of alluded to, why would they take on potentially this extra game that can only make them look worse? Essentially, well, let me say what also caught my eye on college football. And then I love you said you watched a lot of football. I'd love to catch uh, know what caught your eye. Here are three things, three conference-level things that caught my eye. The first one, 
maybe, you know, at one point you remember a couple of weeks before the end of the season, we are talking, I wonder if two ACC teams were going to make it in, you know, mm-hmm. Clemson and yep. Miami. Maybe the ACC wasn't that good. You know, this is another one of those things. You know, Clemson and Miami got beaten soundly. Yeah. And remember, Miami got beaten soundly by many people thought was a bad Wisconsin team. I mean, yeah. they weren't even supposed <clears throat> to be that good. And they beat Miami soundly. And Clemson got beaten soundly by Alabama. I'm not saying yeah, getting, a I lot mean, of people get beaten soundly yeah, by Alabama. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that be, getting beaten by Alabama with that defense well, is, that, I, I don't think, necessarily a statement. Either way, that was, one, that was one thing. The other thing is... Maybe the Big Ten was a little bit better than we all thought. I, I, know, I don't know if you know this stat. I don't know if our listeners on Wharton Moneyball know this stat. And by the way, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's just one 844 You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And we also have polls and other stuff up on our Twitter feed, at WMoneyball. And again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, along with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Another conference which maybe shocked everybody was the Big Ten. You know, until Michigan blew an 18-point lead or something like that against South Carolina, the Big Ten it was about to do something that had never been done. They were going to be 8-0 in bowl yeah. games. Every Big Ten team won its bowl game, except for Michigan, which blew it late at the end against South Carolina. So maybe the Big Ten being snubbed, again, but back to the point we talked about earlier, who did the Big Ten play in their bowl games? It wasn't the it wasn't Ohio State against Clemson, Ohio State against Alabama. You know, a bunch of Big Ten teams beat up on a bunch of fifteen to twenty five ranked teams. Yeah, we know the Big Ten was that good, yeah. but maybe not elite good. But that was another thing that caught my eye was just the success of the Big Ten. And another obviously one was you know the thing that people have said all along: the SEC is the best conference in football. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that's re- a, a relatively uncontroversial statement because you know, I mean, it it it. it you know, routinely puts four or five of its teams in the top 15, right? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, certainly I think the—I mean, the Big Ten was, uh, you know, a hair's breadth away from, like, essentially putting one of its teams in the playoffs, right? I mean, Ohio State was almost a coin flip to go in there. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, they, they were technically snubbed, but, um, you know, I, I, you know a, a power conference is going to get snubbed every uh. year, basically, at least one. At least one. And as we found out this year, maybe two. And, yeah. of course, by the way, um, it, the, the Pac-10, as it turned out, and in reverse to the Big Ten, I think the Pac-10 may have won one bowl game. Maybe it was two. It was one up until maybe the last game. So maybe they got the Pac-10, the, the Pac-10, Pac-10 kind of right. right, right. It wasn't particularly a very good conference. Um, let's also do a little bit of switch to the NFL. I'm sure you watched a bunch of NFL this last week. I did. Week. I and did. the good news is um, we have Nathan Jonke on at 9 o'clock who's going to talk to us about the NFL. So we got both college football and NFL covered this week. There were many shocking things that happened in the NFL. Let me go through them rapid fire and just get your reaction to each one of them. The first one was the Ravens losing at home to the Bengals to yep. miss the playoffs. I'll just say Amazing. it again. The Ravens, Amazing. your boy Joe Flacco, I know, oh. Hall of Famer Joe Flacco, <laughs> losing at home to the Bengals He's to miss the playoffs. He's taking pass interference to a whole other level. He changed the league. There we go. So what do you think? Well, I mean... I mean, I, I as as a person who's not particularly fond of the Ravens, I'm I'm, I'm I, I enjoyed watching that come about, and I especially enjoyed watching it come about. Not so much as the Ravens getting knocked out, but the fact that the Bills uh, were the ones that were elevated into the playoffs by all these shenanigans. I think it's you know they haven't been there in a long time, and they've had a very up and down season. Um, so I, I I think it's delightful, even even as a, a you know a 
fan of the Patriots in the AFC East that to see the the Bills make the playoffs. I, I I could not agree more. I was thinking of you yeah. as uh I was thinking of you as the uh, Ravens were losing that game at the end, and I was thinking, boy, Shane somewhere somehow is feeling pretty good yeah, about and, that. And, and I think the Bills started out the the day with something like a less than ten percent chance to make the playoffs. I mean, it really did have to. A lot of things had to line. They had to beat. Uh, they had to win. <clears throat> I think Tennessee had to win. Um, and the Ravens had to that lose is correct. all to make the playoffs. So, I mean, having three or four things like that just kind of line up, it's, 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 also fun, why, it's fun to see. Yeah, it's also why they had the Ravens at a 97% mm-hmm. chance to make the playoffs. We actually have a caller, uh, Dan from Atlanta. Uh, Dan, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. How you doing, man? We're doing great. How are you? I hope you had a good New Year's, and hope you have a good 2018 in front of you. Likewise, man. So, uh... To piggyback on your thing about the, uh, football and all that, you know, I'm a big basketball fan, and I was wondering, you know, that week zero, like you're talking about, that whole they maybe they should do a conference crossover challenge where you could have some regard to be able at the end of the year to say what happened with what, you know, as far as who who ranked what in the beginning of the year. And then another point is what you were saying about the next year uh, challenges, you know, with the teams. It's kind of hard because you lose so many recruits, and it, you know there's so much variance in the in the look of a team, the makeup. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us, and thanks for your call. You, you bring up two great points. The yeah. first thing is that, and Shane and I mentioned this: we're fans as well as statisticians. I'd love to see the SEC, ACC or, you know, challenge in college football where one plays one, two plays two. We'd, we'd love to see that yeah. at the beginning of the season. I mean, you might as well wait until, you know, there's a snowball in hell yeah. for that going to happen. <clears throat> They're just not going to want to do that. Yeah. I mean, just from a, <clears throat> as, as Shane pointed out, let's think about it as a loss function. What's the gain? Well, there's lots of gain. But what's the loss? Well, now all of a sudden you start out the season with a loss against a tough team, and you have no chance in some sense. You're eliminated from national championship contention, which is the last thing they want to happen. Well, you know, the thing about basketball— Well, I mean, uh, you, yeah. you, you— Oh, yeah, Dan, please. Go ahead. Uh, I say, isn't that part of the argument? A lot of these teams are saying, all right, well, I need to—if t- I'm going to schedule tough to get into that argument, I need to do it the first week of the season so that loss doesn't hurt me. Yeah, it, uh, Dan, that's a great point. I think you're right. I think, look— I could argue from the school's point of view, well, certain schools' point of view. The question is, who runs college football? Is it the teams that would benefit from it, or is the teams that would potentially lose from it? And this is the classic, I'll call it, you know, asymmetric power situation. What does Alabama gain from this? Nothing. What does Georgia gain from this? Nothing. What does even a Wisconsin gain from this? Let's say it was ACC, you know, SEC Big Ten. Wisconsin only had to win one decent game or good game against Ohio State, and they're in the. I mean, they played a bunch of bad teams. They don't even gain anything from it, well, really. Well, except I mean, I could counter argue that if 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 you've sort of forced all the power conferences to do this, right? So, oh, like all different. the big teams are doing this, um, then Alabama may actually benefit. Uh, you know, obviously they do have to win that first game, but like the teams. 
that win that first game, they benefit because all of their, you know, there's a whole bunch of competition down the road for for the national, you know, for the national playoffs that are also playing tough games that first week. Look, I agree with you. If you structure it in a way that it happened to everybody, it wasn't just four or five of the teams like, let's UCF, I'm the AD of UCF, let me just call up Georgia and see if I can schedule a game with them. No, Georgia's not going to play that game. But you're right. If it was structural, as Dan was saying, and everybody was doing it, then we have an opportunity. Now, of course, college basketball is so different. Number one, we have a 64-team tournament. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, they play roughly 30 games a season. So it's very different to say, you know, all right, so I'm Duke. I'll play a game against Michigan State every year, and we'll have the, you know, the, you know, the ACC, Big Ten Challenge, whatever. It's not as damaging one way or the other. And one could even argue it helps them prepare for the NCAA tournaments. So I just see college basketball very different than college football. I mean, in you that could, one, one thing you could, one, one way you could kind of force this, I guess, is maybe contingent on you getting into the college football playoff, like the, you being one of those top four teams, you are therefore compelled to play this kind of like week zero sort of quote-unquote exhibition or whatever against, say, the next four top teams coming out of the Bulls as as judged by the committee or something it's like a, that. That's actually a great idea. It's almost I, let's wait, It's almost like a tax. <clears throat> no, I mean, no, which, yeah, exactly. It's no, a but tax. No, it's no, not like any of these teams would turn down that chance at the to get in the playoffs because of this. So, I mean, if you kind of tied it to the fact that, well, this is the, this is the price you pay for making the playoffs— you have to play this exhibition well, game. Well, not just that. You'd probably yeah. also make it harder, which fans I don't think would mind. It would make it harder to make it back next yeah. year. That's fine. It, it, it almost encourages a sort of parody or something like that. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dan, for the call. And again, if yeah. you want to join the conversation, please, like just like Dan did, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our producer, Matt Datz, is waiting for your calls. So we were also just talking about the NFL. We talked about the Ravens. Let's talk about something that, I guess, is related to your interest in football, but in a cousin-like way. I was going to say, obviously, the 49ers with your guy, Jimmy Garoppolo. Oh, my goodness. So they, Looking not, so good. I mean, so how much uncertainty do you have left that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be? I don't want to look. I'm not going to compare, compare him to the greatest of all time, Tom Brady. No one should be compared to Tom Brady. <laughs> That's true. How convinced are you now that he's at least, let's say, assuming he stays injury free, a top half? quarterback in the NFL. He oh, went- I'm, I'm relatively certain about that now. I mean, we've now had almost a half season of performance. I mean, if we you have. count the ones no, yeah. with the, pa- you know, the few games with the Patriots as well no, we as the games with the 49ers. I think we have seven or eight. So, and, and I mean, he's undefeated. Undefeated. I, I so, No, I mean, very few mediocre quarterbacks pull that off, I think. So I'm I'm re- I, I, I don't have much uncertainty that he's going to be an above average quarterback. Um, so you know, and I, if I'm San Francisco and I have all that cap space, which they very much do, you, you got to be very optimistic about the future because you're going to be able to afford to not only lock him down for the next few years, but also essentially surround him with even better weapons than he was doing with this year. Well, so the 49ers beating the Rams, by the way, brings me to the next point, which, again, uh, I think uh, we'll discuss it not <clears throat> only today, but in weeks where our other co-host, Cade Massey, is around, because obviously he's done a lot of research on the value of the NFL draft. The 49ers winning potentially dropped them two or three spots in the draft, because they ended up 6-10. and 10. Yeah. There were five teams that ended up 5-11. and 11. I don't know where they would have no, been. No, as a Patriots that... fan, I'm a little disappointed about this. But... Well, the other thing is, by the way, my team, the Bucks, beat the Saints. On the last game of the season, so the Bucks 
dropped two spots in the draft. You say, eh, what's the big deal? Well, just just by the way, you know, there's the classic uh, draft chart that yeah. you know all the NFL teams use. I actually looked at how much kind of it costs you dropping from fifth to seventh. It's kind of like dropping from 16th, the middle of the first round, to 31st, the bottom of the first round. I mean, the number of points that this classic chart assigns okay. to 5th to 7th <clears> is the same as the difference from 16th to 31st. Interesting. So by the Bucks winning the last game of the season against the Saints, they now have the 7th pick instead of the 5th. The uh, 49ers, I'm not sure their exact order, maybe something like 8th, ninth, or 10th now instead of 4th or 5th. What's your assessment of this? Should the Bucks have won? Should the 49ers have won? If you're trying to surround Garoppolo with great talent, why not lose the last game, surround him with better talent? Well, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, I think, I think the, yes, I mean, you could certainly argue for that. And I mean, I think the fact that that doesn't happen as much is sort of, I mean, I mean, in other sports, we see that kind of tanking strategy a little bit more. I, I, you know, I, I think done a little bit more boldly in the NFL. It's, it's, we, we've, we've seen it as well. I mean, teams have, I think, probably not done their best to win um, at all times. I mean, we had the sort of suck for luck competition a few Absolutely. years ago. Yep. Um, and you know, as far as the specifically the Bucks and Forty ers decisions, why they kind of went for the win there or not. You know, I, I think probably they aren't as, um, you know, far thinking with it. You know, I, I think they're more immediately like being like, well, you know, the coaching staff is like, well, I, I you know, maybe another win is that much greater chance I get retained for the next season, et cetera, et cetera. The players have something to play for individually because they're going to be judged based on their performance going into next season. So I, I just don't think there's as much sort of future thought to it. Yeah, um, it just. I- Maybe the one the one that bothered me more was the Bucks beating the Saints cuz look the Bucks underperformed this year we know that as you you may not know this stat so the Bucks went 1 and 4 in their last 5 games that you may have known. Yeah. Um the five the four games they lost they all they lost they lost them all by less than one score. Yeah. And so we knew the Bucks weren't awful. They just underperformed. Yeah. They have talent. They They've underperformed. They've got an amazing quarterback. I wish I wish they could Put a team around him. Well, more. Than, I wish they could put an offensive line yeah. around him so they could protect him and run the football. But the 49ers were an interesting. For some reason, it doesn't bother me as much because Garoppolo's still undefeated. It almost has this magic to it now. <laughs> you know, they, they're calling it the magic of Garoppolo. Yeah. But it almost seems like if you want to talk about momentum, yeah. it's hard to argue the 49ers don't have momentum going into next season. Yeah, I mean, the 49ers, I, I, I think the 49ers have, I mean, there's there's future value in, in kind of um, what they did to the end of this season because that's a franchise that probably, you know, their fan base is probably, you know, pre-Garoppolo was feeling pretty, they haven't been good for a long time. Oh, absolutely. And Well, well not that, I mean, they went to the that, Super Bowl. That's right, okay. They so, went to the Super Bowl. Yeah, that's right. I mean, But they've been quite bad since then, you know, and, and so... That having this kind of like run of the run at the end of the season probably gives their fan base a lot to be excited about going into next season. So let me talk to you about one other uh, uh, game and one all one other stat before we go to the break. So I'm sure you saw that the Eagles lost the game six to nothing. Yeah, had no offense. But that's not what I want to talk about. Although we could talk about the actual game itself. There's not much to talk about. Do you know that obviously the Eagles are the one seed according to Vegas odds right now. The Eagles would be a home underdog against all the teams they would play. 
Really? Yep. Even the wild, even 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 the. I wild don't think card it's teams? the wild card. I think if they were to play the any of the division winners, any of the division winners, they would actually be the underdog. Hmm. Um, so they would be. Well, let me ask you: Who would you rather be right now? Would you? Well, let's just go through the teams quickly. Would you rather be the Vikings than the Eagles right now? Yeah. Okay. I would. Would you rather be the Saints than the Eagles right now? Probably. Okay. Would you rather be uh, the, same, and playing it in the Philadelphia though? I don't know. Would you rather be the Rams? No, I would not. I mean, the Rams have not. I mean, the, you know, right. the Rams finished. You know, their end of the season was not a good look for them either, right? No. I mean, the Rams do not. But they look didn't impressed. play anybody. They didn't play anybody the last. Well, one. But, what are you talking about? They played Garoppolo. No, no, they didn't play any of their players. I'm oh, saying yeah. the Rams didn't yeah. play any of their yeah, players. Yeah. That's right. They sat Aaron Donald. They sat yeah. Goff. They sat uh, Gurley. They didn't. I'm saying they didn't yeah, play yeah. No, any that's of right. their players. No, that's that's true. That's true, but. Um, I still think, you know, losing the last couple games of the season does not bode well. That would in. be the one team. As a matter of fact, let yeah. me think about it. Um, so I know the obviously the Eagles are one, the Vikings are two, the Saints, I'm going to say, are three, and the Rams are four. I believe that's the case. Well, if that if that is true, uh, no, actually, it's not. I think, oh, unfortunately, that's not true. At least if what Matt Datz gave me is correct, the Rams are three. Now, that's unfortunate because I think you and I both agree we, the, we'd rather have the Eagles play the Rams, but if all goes according to the chalk, as they say, yeah. the Eagles will be playing the Saints. Yeah. No, I mean, certainly. No, that's... wouldn't you rather play the Rams than the Saints? I would. I would. But, you know, at the same time, the Eagle, you know, the Saints... You know, in winter in the north, if it's still really cold in a couple weeks, but I with, don't know. They've got two great running backs now. You know, yeah, it's I a mean, different. It's a different Saints team. Yeah, I no, I I mean, I agree, but uh, um, I I probably would rather play the Rams if I'm if I'm the Eagles. I well, let me ask you a question. Let me just let's just revisit. Obviously, you're more than happy to revisit last year's Super Bowl. Let's talk about the team that lost in last year's Super Bowl, the Falcons. What do you think about them? They got in. They played very well the second half of the season. Very, very well. What, what do you think about them going into the Rams? I think I don't see any reason the Falcons can't go into the Rams and win that game. Yeah, and I don't see any reason the Panthers can't beat the Saints. I mean, I mean, I, I think either, though. I mean, again, that's why I sort of probably talking about potential equals matchups before we've played that first week, the playoffs, is, you know, premature. Either of those two teams... Uh, the Rams or the Saints could get upset, and it, it would be an upset, but it wouldn't be a dramatic upset. I, I don't be, think I think either of those two things are realistic. I, I would say you would say the following, um, and we'll talk to Nathan Jonke about this during the nine o'clock hour. I think the only thing I think you and I would agree with. I think there's three teams I would be surprised with, if, at least if they weren't in their respective championship games. Yeah, I think the Patriots and the Steelers. It would be shocking if either of them didn't make the championship game. Would, is that true, or you'd give less even weight mm. to the Steelers? No, no, I, I, I'd be surprised. I mean, I'm obviously hoping for the ja a Jaguars upset of the Steelers or something like that. But, but, you'd but be surprised. I, I would be surprised. And I think the other one I would have is the Vikings. I would be very surprised if the Vikings were not at they least in the NFC yeah, they, championship game. They, they look game. the strongest of all the NFC teams. I agree. I agree. Well, that's been the first half hour here on Wharton Moneyball. This has been Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. We have three quarters to go here on Wharton Moneyball. Please join us again after the break. On the 27, it's second down and 12. We go wild dog with Sony. Nauta goes in motion left. Snap it to Michelle. He's running to the left. Angling. 25-20. Got a block for Grubb. 15-10-5. Touchdown. 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 
Boy, what a play call right there. Go wild dog. Sonny Michelle, great presence and great patience. Found a crease, and the dogs are all on the field and now running to Sonny Michelle, mobbing him. They're mobbing him in the back corner. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, for that end to the Georgia-Oklahoma Rose Bowl game, which had the two-headed monster of Michelle and Chubb running wild there. And, of course, that's a perfect lead-in to our first guest, live guest here today on Wharton Moneyball, Stephen Godfrey. Stephen is a senior reporter for SB Nation. He's also the co-host of the College Football Podcast, Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. And you can follow him on Twitter at at 38Godfrey. That's at 38G-O-D-F-R-E-Y. Stephen, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Well, we're doing great, especially after that clip. It's got us back into the college football mode. So it was a uh, it was a contrast between watchability and uh, and really just whatever the opposite word of watchability is with that sugar bowl. That yeah, it's true. Right? It's true. Well, could you yeah. talk to us about your reaction to the Rose Bowl first and foremost? Were you surprised by? Let's even start with the over on the game. That the score was, I think, the final score was fifty four to forty eight. A hundred and two mm-hmm. points scored in that game. I think you maybe not be surprised that Georgia could score a bunch on Oklahoma, but Oklahoma scoring that much on Georgia, were you surprised? just to, let's call it the style of the game it's funny is uh you know the last 24 hours i've been asked on different radio shows like what was your takeaway from the game and you know those super cliche little halftime interviews that the coach gives the espn kirby said something to the effect of we've just got to coach them better it's our fault and you hear that all the time but what is so shocking and if you're not familiar with georgia on the national landscape this is what you should take away he was right they have as much talent as anybody in the country, and the halftime adjustments that they made to come out and allow only one touchdown on offense from Oklahoma in the second half, uh, it, it was just a matter It was a matter of scheme. It was very, very impressive that they, one, he was honest, and two, that they were able to identify and essentially swallow up Baker Mayfield in the Oklahoma offense in the second half. That's actually a great point, Stephen, that you made. I, had, I hadn't paid attention to that. Oklahoma had 31 points at the half. They scored one offensive, one defensive touchdown, and a field goal. That's a great point. I was thinking, oh, Oklahoma ran over them the whole game, but you actually got a good point. They only did score one touchdown in the second half. They didn't – and the other thing, too, is Georgia made some simple modifications. They didn't go wholesale. They didn't get out from – or they didn't get away from what they're comfortable with, but – I think they made a couple of key changes in the secondary and the way that they were they were kind of catching some of those routes that, that Oklahoma puts on you and and obviously they you know without getting too intricate they love to throw the ball they like to move it around in space and how you adjust to that with uh, I, I think obviously a more superior defense in uh, on Georgia's side uh, I mean it's the adjustment of the game obviously because Mayfield was you know up, up until that point unstoppable. Um, for about a, I would say a little bit, maybe just under an entire quarter in the first quarter, I thought, wow, this could be a repeat of the first Auburn game for Georgia, where they're just out of space, they're out of alignment, and this team that's not used to playing at this level is just going to kind of collapse on itself. So, I mean, I, I you know, the kids play the game. Roquan, Roquan Smith is a is a beast, but like the adjustments that Georgia's coaches made, I, I haven't seen something that dramatic in a long time. Well, can you speak to? Uh, I mean, I, I agree. Watching the game, it was clear that that half was very, that that halftime was very important. And uh, but why did they? Why did they need that first half essentially to figure this out? Give, That's a good give, question. 
You know, like why, why, why did they have such say, you know, suboptimal schemes coming into the game? That you know, that, that's a really good question, and I would love to hear. From, uh, I would love to ask Kirby that if I ever get a chance in the offseason because it was very unlike them. I mean, look, Kirby. You know, Kirby made his name and, and his brand off of being the Alabama defensive coordinator, and they've done so well at disrupting offenses similar to Oklahoma and let's just call it the Big Twelve or the Texas style offense, the passing scheme, I don't know if if the moment was too big for individual players. It's, you know, I haven't rewatched the game, but I think I think it's a little bit of jitters in the first quarter. I think Mayfield is an accurate passer when he's given time. They started to get to him. I think they changed their front seven pressure. Um, that helps. But uh, I don't know necessarily why it got away from them so quickly because this is not an offense that they are – you know, entirely unfamiliar with it. It's certainly not as a coaching staff. Yeah, I think Shane's question uh, brings up a great point, Stephen, because I know you're both on the analyst side, but also because of your podcast on the analytics side, you would think this is something that, you know, by studying the tape, by looking at their formations, you know, by having four weeks essentially to prepare for this game, um, you would think this is something that wouldn't catch Georgia by surprise. Well, look, first drives are in. First drives in football, and sometimes even the first two drives in football, are really, really, really interesting. Um, a lot of people still script. Some defenses are going to come out in base, and they're going to play something. Where they're going to play basically a safe coverage just so they don't get beat over the top, especially if you're coming in against the balance team. They want to see how they're going to run the ball against you. You see that more in the NFL than you do in college because in college you still have moments of true talent disparity. But I think there's something to be said for – you know, maybe not giving up 31 and a half, but coming out and saying, all right, what, what do they want to do? What are they, what are they going to do specifically to us today? What do they come out and then making an adjustment off of that? If you have the talent that can absorb that information and then go out and execute in the middle of the game, drive by drive. Um, and, and if you can identify that as a defensive coordinator. So we've obviously been spending the first five or 10 minutes with you talking about the Rose Bowl. Why don't we make a nice transition now to the what happened in the Sugar Bowl? Were you surprised at all about how Alabama's defense was really able to throttle Clemson in that game? And does that make any suggestions to you about what might happen in the, in the national championship game? You're probably going to have a boring national championship game. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that. I mean, if risk assessment is the core of the Saban philosophy, which is in, and sort of therefore the core of the of the Kirby Smart philosophy, and what I saw in Alabama in the Sugar Bowl was the Alabama of four or five years ago, which is sort of terrifying to think because you kind of thought post Lane Kiffin there had been a philosophical change. They were they are weak with Jalen Hurts. They are, and that's nothing against Jalen Hurts. He's just not as a complete quarterback as the, as they've had in recent years, and and yet it didn't matter. And that's kind of terrifying because what they did on defense was, uh, you know, I, I switched over to watch the feed, um, the ESPN feed with the, in the coaches' film room, and uh, it, it was like six or seven college football coaches. Major Applewhite, the, the head coach at the University of Houston, had the best assessment. It was the simplest assessment, which I, I mean, it is sort of an Occam's Razor type moment in a blowout. Alabama got pressure with four. And they were able to completely contain everything on the outside with the receivers at Clemson in man coverage. They didn't really have to press. Receivers couldn't get any separation. So if you can get pressure with four in any given situation, whatever Clemson's coming out with in personnel, then you can pretty much do whatever you want because then you can drop everyone else, shift from zone to man, 
confuse Kelly Bryant. That's what they did. I mean, when you're under pressure with a, with a four-man rush and you still can't find an open receiver, it was um, – you know, it's funny that I, that game will be more interesting than the Rose Bowl to me because of the ramifications it's going to have over the next year or two. So, it what do you mean by that? What, it was a statement what, against Clemson. What it type really of? Was. Oh, you're saying the you think the Sugar Bowl has more ramifications because, in some sense, if Clemson had won the game, I don't want to say anything ever tilts away from Nick Saban. But now you could say that you know maybe Dabo Sweeney is the next you know he's yeah, the no, king absolutely. of college football, and now you'd start to say things have tilted in Clemson's uh, favor. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, no, I mean, maybe not even necessarily in t- it tilted towards Clemson's favor, although at that point you'd be looking at a program that's been in the national title three out of the last you know, three years. And, and I think they would have had – the Clemson I saw earlier in the year would have had the advantage on Georgia. Now I'm just not – I don't know. I was really shocked by their performance. But um, it does create a dull inevitability with what Alabama's been able to do. I mean, you have a defensive coordinator who's the head coach of a rival school right now. They looked completely prepared. So the old Saban defense, it's just sort of terrifying. So let me ask you a question. You know, there was one of those stats that's sitting out there now, which is that Nick Saban is 11-0 against former assistants. 11-0. Is that worth anything? I mean, you know, is that? No. Nothing. Okay, good. Shane Jensen's nodding yes, he agrees with you. Um, Why is that worth nothing? Uh, Let's break it down. I mean, you break it down really fast. One, they include Derek Dooley in there which is, I mean, he was a special teams coordinator, and he never ran a competent program. Um, that was a train wreck of a situation. It's not a comparable stat, especially when you're looking at what Kirby Smart has done in Georgia. Um, so let's throw those games out. Um, I'm trying to think. D'Antonio, I mean, they creamed D'Antonio, right, um, yep. in Michigan State. That was just a, that was a talent issue more than anything else. Michigan State also, I'd covered their previous game that year, and they were really, really banged up. Um, these are all situ- it's situational. It's subjective. I'm not the stats guy necessarily on our podcast. That's Bill Connolly, who literally invented an analytics system. I'm just the I'm just the dumb reporter who made a C in business calculus. But when you look at a stat like that, it's fun and it's fun to create that kind of narrative. And I get it. But you have to look at these games and these matchups individually because the idea that this Georgia team is comparable to the Michigan State or Tennessee or even look. Florida was a dumpster fire when when Will Muschamp took over. So yeah, he was going to take losses against that uh, against an Alabama program that was running perfectly at the time. Kirby has more talent than any other ex assistant has had going into a game against Alabama. He is also seasoned in the fact that he is a defensive. I, I do think he was a far more intelligent, effective defensive coordinator. While I'm not nearly as showy a defensive coordinator as Muschamp, I think he understands the system better. Um, it's funny. I so I spent signing day at Oregon in February, and Mario Cristobal, who's now the head coach, had just been hired by Willie Taggart to come over from Alabama. And I don't even know if I'm supposed to tell this story, but he broke out the Alabama org chart and some of their internal, like internal operating procedures. And th- I mean, he was just these like six inch binders after binder. And Kirby spent the longest amount of time and helped contribute the most to that Alabama way, that Alabama operating procedure. What he's able – they're not there yet in terms of what you see on the field. Again, 31 in the first half against Oklahoma. But I think Kirby provides the best chance organizationally to understand Alabama uh, in, in terms of matchup, in terms of what you can scheme against. You look at the, Okay, so look at the Alabama losses that we've seen in the modern era. They've all been – 
sort of like throwing a bucket of fireworks at them real, real fast, right, and getting them in one or two bad situations. Both of the Ole Miss losses were like that, and so was Johnny Manziel, right? And then you've seen them underperforming games that they were un- uninspired to play in, like Utah in the Sugar Bowl or Oklahoma a couple years ago. To have a best-on-best matchup, this is the this is the best chance the opposition has ever had against Alabama. So you think stylistically – this is a good matchup for Georgia. You think Georgia has both the offensive and defensive weapons to get it done. I'm concerned about Georgia's offense. I'm concerned about Georgia putting enough points on the board. They're going. I mean, look, this is, I think it's going to be an incredibly low-scoring game because Georgia has Georgia understands the way to limit hurts. But look at what Alabama did. They didn't. Their, their average starting field position. I feel like I'm stumping for Georgia. I'm trying not to, but. Alabama's average starting field position midway through the third quarter in that game against Clemson was the 48-yard line. Wow. All right, so when you shorten the field to that degree, I could probably get a touchdown drive in. I'm not as fleet of foot as you, I used to be. You're not, a, you're, not, you're not worried about Georgia's having a true freshman quarterback starting? Oh, I totally am. No, that's what I'm saying. I think this is a 17, I think it's like a 17-13, 14-10 type of game. It's going to be a war of attrition and essentially uh, uh, creating negative space statistically and schematically in that the one who makes the opportunity off of the mistake or creates the best opportunity off of the, the one or two or two or three mistakes each team is going to give you wins the game. Points off of turnover, field position, um, decision-making on third down in the passing game and not trying to press. It sounds like you're uh, describing the college, uh, like the college football version of a soccer game, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, certainly I'm not. I don't have the professional uh, analytical ability to, to say that, uh, but I think so, based on the limited amount of information I have about soccer. I think it's a war of attrition. I think if you're talking about, you want another great example? I think the neutral zone trap in hockey. Yeah. Right. The old Devils and Kings teams. Does this remind you, by the way, does this national championship game, do I have it wrong? Did Alabama and LSU play in the national championship game a few years ago? I don't remember if the final score was 6-3 to three or 13-10 to 10 or something like that. It was 21 to nothing, and LSU never crossed midfield. It was a snuff film. Okay, so it's some, okay, so it something like that. So do you see that? I mean, do you see there's any chance that one of the two teams, I'll make it up, Alabama wins the oh, game I mean, 21 to nothing? If you see that, it's Alabama. Georgia can't do that to Alabama. Okay. Let me ask you another topic that's related, and we have a poll up at, at W Moneyball, which I think you may have retweeted about. Um, am I wrong to suggest that UCF is being robbed here? Just tell me. I, I don't. I want. Yeah, I, I need your no. I, I Steve. I need your no holds barred opinion about this because I've been saying it for weeks <laughs> that UCF deserves a shot. Well. They beat Auburn. I understand it's not transitive. I understand it's not transitive. They beat Auburn. We know Auburn beat both Georgia and Alabama. It doesn't mean UCF wouldn't get throttled. But just tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, we're talking to Stephen Godfrey. Uh, again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Stephen is one of the co-hosts of podcasts Ain't Played Nobody, and you could also follow him on Twitter at at thirty eight Godfrey. So, Stephen, tell us your thoughts about UCF. You can't rob someone of what they never had. Um, the, the system is, I don't know, it's corrupt. It's always been corrupt. Everything about college football is inherently corrupt. The labor force doesn't get paid, and you know. People make insane amounts of money off of public university athletes, but 
when it comes to these mid-major schools, it's a joke. It always has been. And I'm fine with the joke to a degree. What I'm not fine with is when the college football playoff and ESPN, who are essentially the same entity, come out in a marketing spiel every August and July when I have to go to all these events, and they sit here and tell me, look, if you watch the commercial for the college football playoff that they ran for the last six months, it says uh, all 128 teams vying for a shot. No, never, not a chance. They had a In that commercial, they have an illustration of a Louisiana Monroe fan like yelling at a Washington fan, like, oh, we've got a shot. Like, it is a joke. They're doing this to avoid antitrust legislation. And I think, I think we're on the verge of some sort of legal action because the concept that these schools are treated fairly is a joke. It's never going to happen. I think UCF should have been in the playoff, and I'm fine saying that. I do this for a living. I'm going to get screamed at by Alabama fans with nothing new. UCF did every single thing humanly possible that they could within the time frame allotted. There's nothing else you can do because they schedule so far out. If there are four teams, occasionally, yes, one of the schools, once, I don't know, mathematically, what, every four or six years, will probably come from outside of the, uh, the Power Five. So you would have had, know, just I mean, to be, just to follow up, I can say it. yeah, just, well, that's pretty bold. Just to follow up, you would have had UCF replace Alabama? I think they can make an argument for it. That's interesting because, I mean, I think most people, according to every power ranking, but not just ESPNs, but our co-host, Cade Massey, Massey Peabody, lots of them had Alabama as the number one team, even though, obviously, they lost to Auburn, which kept them out of the SEC championship game. I don't necessarily think you replace Alabama with UCF. I think when you're constructing that one through four, I think the the one through four slotting of Clemson, Oklahoma, Georgia, Alabama was, was was very flawed, as we saw. Absolutely. The worst team that we saw of the four was the number one team. Yeah, I, I just I, this, this emphasis on conference champion. There are completely non-football, serious non-football related uh, considerations that go into this stuff. Okay, there's a lot of politics involved. There always has been. The Bulls are still operating this thing. There's a huge, huge amount of equity involved with the selection committee and how they portray the you know how they kind of almost you notice almost rotate these conference these conferences in terms of representation and i know look jim delaney's incensed because there were two sec teams and ohio state got kicked out i get that i don't know what you do to fix it um expand abandon the bowl formatting altogether but you know we hated the bcs because it was flawed this is marginally better, but this is far from perfect. So, and if uh, you are Boise State or Houston or UCF, you're never going to have a shot ever, ever, ever. So, would you support? We only have a few minutes left, Stephen. Just a few, just a two quick follow-ups. Would you support? Shane and I proposed two things in our first half hour. One, of course, is the one that every a lot of people are suggesting, which is expanding to eight teams, and then a UCF okay. might get in. The second was as a tax, if you'd like, to making the college football playoff. Make the four teams that make the college football playoff play the next best four teams, let's say, in week zero of the next season. So make UCF get a shot at one of the top four teams, and then there'll be no discussion by the end of the season. What do you think about those suggestions? That's a cool thing. I mean, uh, practical implications would be incredibly difficult, but I love I love your logic on that. They don't, but you can understand they don't want to democratize this. System. Yeah, I mean, obviously the opposition to that would come to, from they, the top teams. They want us to gripe in the margins, and they want to push their twenty to, to thirty classic brands. That's it. 
the only reason we even talk about these schools and they're represented at all is because ESPN and the other networks need the inventory because they have 20 channels that they have to stuff with, with content. That's it. That's the only reason the AAC exists in the first place. And I love the AAC. I think you have more dynamic football. I think you have talented teams that can come in and completely knock, you know, Tiffany programs in the jaw. But they don't want this to happen. And so you have these upstarts that, that exist as aberrations, right, in the margins of, of when we look back on these seasons. Houston did this to Florida State a couple years ago, right? Now, Houston wasn't undefeated at the time, but they, they, they beat Oklahoma in week one. We don't really care, at least as a sport and an industry. We don't. We just like the, we like the argument for the argument's sake. But the idea of democratizing this process outside of those five conferences plus Notre Dame, nobody's on board for that because all of those people would lose money. Well, Stephen, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We've been talking to Stephen Godfrey, senior reporter for SB Nation. He's also the co-host of the College Football Podcast. Podcast ain't played nobody. You can follow him on Twitter at at 38Godfrey. Stephen, thank you for joining us this morning on Morton Moneyball. Thank you all. Well, it, that's been great. Uh, Shane, that was great talking to Stephen. I guess he's like me. He's yeah. on the UCF yeah, train. No, and he likes a... your suggestion of the tax to play in the championship uh, foursome is that you must play a team, let's call it five through eight of the next year. We're, we're building a grassroots consensus towards this. It's, it's, it's only decades away from happening. Yeah, there we go. And we'll <laughs> still be here on Morton Moneyball, we hope, broadcasting here on Morton Business Radio 111 when that happens. So this has been the first half, half of Morton Moneyball. Uh, we're going to be joined by Nathan Jonke in the next half hour talking about the NFL. Lots more sports, lots more statistics, lots more business to talk about. Please join us again after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back, sports, business, and statistics fans to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, and some combination of myself, Shane, Cade, and Adi are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week on iTunes and SoundCloud. And of course, if you've been following us here for the first hour or throughout the last three and a half years, you can always follow us on Twitter at at WMoneyball. You can, of course, this is a call-in show. We had Dan from Atlanta who called us in in the first hour of the show. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email questions to our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. So Shane, you and I have always talked about this. One of the great pleasures of being co-hosts of Wharton Moneyball is that we get to talk to people doing, if you'd like, analytics in the field. And our next guest is certainly a, a great example of that. We're lucky to have Nathan Jonke joining us. Nathan is the Director of Analytics at Pro Football Focus, where he's worked for over seven years. As Director of Analytics, he's done a lot of methodology around turning uh, Pro Football Focus grades into season and game grades. You can also follow him on Twitter at at PFF underscore Nate Jonke. So, Nathan, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Good morning, guys. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing great. We're uh, obviously excited about all the pro football and stuff's going on. There's, no, you know, Kate, uh, Shane and I are huge uh, pro football fans. I wanted to start out since we're sitting here in Huntsman Hall in Philadelphia, and obviously we're sitting here with the uh, home of the Philadelphia Eagles right nearby. I wanted to start out. There's thousands of questions we're going to get to ask you, but I wanted to start out with this one: How worried should we be as Eagles fans 
about Nick Foles running the ship? And how do you, as someone that's analytics-driven, think about analyzing someone like Nick Foles, who's played a bunch of games, but, but not, not a lot recently, a lot recently not yeah. a lot recently. How do you think about that and the kind of the analytics work you guys do at Pro Football Focus? Sure. I think there's definitely some reason to be worried. Um, when you have a player who hasn't played very much this season or recently, um, obviously you have to take that into account. There's a little bit more uncertainty when looking forward with someone like him, but I think he's definitely hasn't played as well as Carson Wentz by a decent amount. Um, even when he's not under pressure, he's only averaging 6.3 yards per attempt this season, which isn't very good. And uh, with him, he has played a significant amount in previous years, so you can take that into account as well. And in 2015 and 2014, uh, when he wasn't under pressure, he wasn't playing great there as well. So you really have to go back to 2013, and that was a completely different offense he was playing in. So I don't think you can feel too confident about Foles right now, but at least with the Eagles, they're a team full of talent on the offensive line, at running back, at receiver, all across that defense. So I think they're a team built that even if they don't have excellent play out of their quarterback, they can still find ways to succeed. So, Nathan, we were also one of the stats I quoted in the first half hour of today's show was, you know, Vegas has them essentially as almost an underdog, a home number one seed underdog against almost any team they play. I mean, certainly against the Saints, Vikings and potentially the the Rams against the division winners. How do you see it? How do you guys see it at pro football focus? Do you see them as an underdog against the other division winners, even though they're the one seed? I think I would have them as a favorite over any of these teams in the NFC. I think the NFC is a a conference right now that there's a lot of very good teams, but I think them just having a home game against and having a first round bye, I think that'll give them an advantage over every team. I think they might not be the favorites to come or make it to the Super Bowl out of the NFC. I think Uh, the Vikings with how well they've been playing, and they also have that first round by, I think they might be the favorites right now to make it to the Super Bowl. But I think uh, without knowing who the Eagles will be facing, if I had to take a guess, I'd say the Eagles would win their upcoming matchup. So possibly make it to the NFC Championship game, but maybe not get past the Vikings. Correct. So what's interesting, of course, is, you know, um, as a fan, maybe I'd love your reaction to this. You may your prediction suggests we're going to be seeing for the first time in Super Bowl history a team playing the Super Bowl in their home stadium. Uh, yeah, it's never happened before, but I think the Vikings have been playing that well and have, uh, especially at quarterback with how well Case Keenum has been playing and their defense. Uh, they've been playing well and have basically the same players they've had the last couple of years, and they've just continued to build on their success there. So. Um, I think the Vikings, even though the rest of the NFC is very good right now, I would say the Vikings have the best chance to make it. Well, it's a perfect transition if we talk about the Super Bowl to talk about the other guy who's likely to be in the Super Bowl. His name is Tom Brady. Um, How do you see Tom Brady? You know, people talk about the 40-year-old, and you've done a huge amount of work, and and the whole field thanks you for this, Nathan, on player evaluation. How do you see the 40-year-old Tom Brady? Have you seen the showing, the starting, the beginning of the cliff that everyone talks about that happens at age 40? How do you see Tom Brady's performance this year? compared to other years because you know as as a Pats fan there have been I mean he obviously is still excellent I, we love him but you know there have been signs he you know f- five you know five straight games with an interception I mean that's not something 
all that damning for an average quarterback, but for Tom Brady, you you, you sort of see, or or maybe we're just overlooking for signs of a drop off just because we expected so much. Yeah, I think with him, um, I don't think he's playing quite as well as he was last year when he was um, out of this world excellent. But I still think he's playing better than he has been during a lot of the years of his career, which is really impressive to say out of him. Um, I think when he's not under pressure, he's still very, very good, completing over 70% of his passes, has a passer rating of 105. So there might be quarterbacks right now who, when they have a clean pocket and all the time in the world, they might be able to make more impressive throws. But I think where Tom Brady stands out amongst the rest of the quarterbacks in the league, both this year and the last couple years, is how well he's able to make things happen when he is under pressure. Uh, this year, he has a passer rating of 96.6 when he is under pressure, which the next closest quarterback is at 83.9. So that's a huge difference between him and the rest of the league. Um, has been accurate on 70% of his throws when under pressure. So the touchdown to interception ratio hasn't been quite as good as recent years or quite as good as some other quarterbacks this year. But I think a lot of that does come down to a little bit of luck here and there. Uh, in some of the past years when Brady's had a ridiculous uh, touchdown-to-interception ratio, uh, he has had some throws where they easily could have been intercepted, but the re- defender just dropped it, where I think he's just been having a little bit less luck with the interceptions recently. But I still think, especially if you look at how well he played in the Pittsburgh game uh, this past week against the Jets, how uh, he's still playing at a very high level. Yeah, so uh, that actually uh, begs a really interesting analytical question. Uh, At Pro Football Focus, do you guys basically, I mean, because as you sort of alluded to, interceptions are, you know, partly, you know, the fault of the quarterback putting together a bad throw. But sometimes, you know, it goes off receiver's hands, uh, you know, and results in interception, or sometimes the defender drops and results in no interception. Do you guys try and kind of take that luck element out of it? Do you have something like more like interceptable balls as opposed to interceptions? You know, kind of, you know, in hockey, it's shots on goal are, are much more sort of predictive of overall offensive performance and the actual goals themselves. Is there something kind of like that that you grade when you grade quarterbacks on their throws? Uh, yes, when we grade quarterbacks and when we grade any position, um, we're trying to do the best we can to take their performance away from the rest of their team or the rest of the opponent's performance. So um, with uh, throwing the ball, if you throw a perfect pass to a wide receiver and the wide receiver just drops it, we still grade the quarterback like the receiver caught it because you did everything that you possibly could do uh, to be successful on the play, and it was someone else that made uh, the play not work out. Where uh, going with the interception cases, if there's an interception where uh, it's off a wide receiver's fingertips, it bounces around and the defender catches it, um, it's possible to have a quarterback graded positively on an interception if it's just that wild of a play that, crazy things happen where if a quarterback throws the ball right into a defender's hand, the defender drops it on the stat sheet that just goes down as an incomplete pass. But we consider that um, just as bad as an interception when looking at the quarterback. 
So this is Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. We're co-hosting Wharton Moneyball this morning here on Sirius XM Business Radio 111, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking to Nathan Jaunke. Nathan is the Director of Analytics at Pro Football Focus. If you have a question for us or for Nathan, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Jump in and join the conversation. So, Nathan, before we leave individual players and we talk about the matchups for this week, um, you know, a player that one could argue is a Hall of Famer, um, has, you know, announced his retirement in the last day or two, and that's Carson Palmer. Where do you see Carson Palmer? How do you think he played this season and, you know, when he was upright and healthy? And, you know, how do you see him? And when you look at, at you at Pro Football Focus, when you look at him and his career, how do you think of Carson Palmer? Sure. I think um, over the course of his career, he's had a good career. He's had some very good years, obviously some years that he's missed with injury. Um, This past year, uh, he only played, I think it was seven weeks. And in that time, I'd say he was a little below average. He's been slightly on the decline. But going back to his 2015 season when the Cardinals were playing very well, um, he was playing about as good as a quarterback can play over the course of the season. Um, just if you ignore that conference championship game. But um, at his best, uh, he's among the best quarterbacks in the league. I just don't think he showed um, that level of play as consistently as plenty of the other quarterbacks that we consider among the best quarterbacks in the league. So you would say that even though he's, you know, I think I looked up his numbers last night or in the last couple days, he's somewhere like 12th or 13th in passing yards as well as 12th and 13th in touchdowns. You would say that he's a marginal Hall of Famer at best. Uh, Yeah, I don't think I would put him in the Hall of Fame. I think by the time he's eligible for the Hall of Fame, with how much it's a passing league right now, there are quarterbacks that are going to pass him, and I think you have to adjust for era when you're looking at quarterbacks and if someone's worthy of the Hall of Fame just because of how uh, much, how big the passing numbers are these days. So let's now move on. Uh, thank you for talking to us about individual players and especially your assessment of Tom Brady, which is certainly interesting. Um, it would be interesting to talk to you now about the, the games coming up this weekend. Um, let's start with you know, a game that I find intriguing because I'm not sure which Chiefs team is going to show up. How are you thinking about the Titans and Chiefs game coming up in the AFC? I think it's definitely an interesting game, but I think the Chiefs probably have an advantage in this one. I think the Chiefs' biggest weakness is their pass rush hasn't been as good as past years, which is a little surprising. Um, Justin Houston's still a good player, but he hasn't been able to get as much pressure as past years. I think Chris Jones has emerged this year as one of the better young interior players, but those are the only two players that have really been getting a pass rush for the Chiefs, and that has hurt them in some games where they're facing a quarterback where uh, that quarterback's able to do well when there's no pressure on it. But I think the Titans are a team where um, they've been limiting pressure all year. I think Mariota um, hasn't been as good when there isn't pressure on him. I think he hasn't been making as many plays, so... I don't think the Titans are able to take advantage of the Chiefs' biggest weakness. And I think um, in other games, other teams have been able to take advantage of the Chiefs' lack of pass rush. So I think that'll help give the Chiefs a little bit of an edge in this one. Do you do any work at Pro Football Focus on evaluating coaches at all? Because, you know, you have to, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is. Here goes Andy Reid again in the playoffs. So do you view, well, first of all, 
either at Pro Football Focus or any of the work you personally do, do you think about coaching that way? And and would you view yeah. Andy Reid as a net plus or a net minus in this situation? Yeah, and, or specifically, I mean, we all think about his ability to kind of clock manage at the end of a game. Is 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 is, is our coach? Can you coach? essentially grade coaches relative to the average coach in terms of that particular ability and does Andy Reid's sort of performance match our perception which is that he's pretty poor at that particular aspect of the game sure uh, we don't grade coaches we definitely take into account um, what scheme a team is using um, when they're playing and taking that into account in our grading but we're not um, separating out and saying okay the player did good but the coach did bad or vice versa at any given moment, and we also uh, haven't looked at uh, how he's done um, in those two-minute drills and how well he's uh, managed his time there. But uh, definitely my perception is the same as yours there of from what I remember in past games um, that has happened. But whether or not he's uh, net positive or net negative, I think with how consistently well he's been able to have good teams and sometimes have teams that, are playing better than what you would think the talent on the team has. I think he's more of a positive than a negative, just in general. So before we leave the Titans Chiefs game, um, you put a lot of emphasis, and you've mentioned quarter. Both you mentioned it about Brady, you mentioned about Mariota, about how quarterbacks play, kind of when they're not pressured versus pressure. Is that a stat that you think, or you guys at Pro Football Focus have shown, is quite predictive of both outcomes or kind of? Do you use this statistic a lot to kind of rank quarterbacks? How do you think about that stat? About again, uh, you you know you mentioned Brady was a ni- roughly a ninety six. The next closest quarterback was an eighty three under pressure how do you think about the under pressure versus not under pressure statistic and using it to rank quarterbacks i think football is a very interesting sport in that sometimes the numbers that are most predictive aren't the ones that um, are ones that you can use to evaluate how someone's done in the past Uh, something like turnovers are things that are hard to predict but when you're trying to look back at a game and say why a team won or lost it's something that's uh, really highly correlated to why they won or lost. So um, someone like Alex Smith, when he's playing under pressure this year, um, in the games that they've won, Alex Smith has played very well under pressure, um, completing 58% of the passes where when the Chiefs have lost this year, he's only completed 34% under pressure. Um, Yards per attempt goes from 8.5 to 4.5. Passer rating goes down significantly. So, um, it's something where it's kind of hard to predict how well Alex Smith is going to do under pressure um, in this game or in any future game just because that is something that for a lot of quarterbacks it's pretty inconsistent. But when you go back and look at a game and say why that team won or lost, um, you can see the games where Alex Smith has played well under pressure um, the Chiefs have been winning, where when he hasn't played well under pressure, they've been losing. Nathan, you brought up a, a, a really great point, which in our three and a half years on Wharton Moneyball, I'm not sure I've heard anyone explain it as clearly as you have, which is that as a backward-looking measure, I can tell you if this happens, this is the likely outcome of the game, but I can't tell you if this is going to happen. So could you talk about, so how as te- as your guys, if you've noticed, for example, you mentioned turnovers, play under pressure, how as a statistician can one then do future forecasts if the X variables, if you'd like, that are going to go into the model, if they're extremely hard to predict in future games? 
Uh, sure. So um, at Pro Football Focus, a lot of what we've done to this point has been more backward-looking, trying to do the best we can to evaluate how well a player has played. And I think we've been doing a great job of that, and I think we can do even better. Uh, we continue to add to our data collection processes to try isolating out as many variables as we can so that um, we've started to look more predictive at it. We've been able to do a nice job predicting games, predicting them against the spread recently, but I think we can do an even better job once we are able to isolate a single player's play more from everyone else's play and isolate different parts of the game so we can start to dig down to uh, which smaller parts are more predictive so we're able to start accounting for that a little better. But it definitely presents an interesting challenge that I don't think is as present in other sports as it is in football. Do you think that technology is going to change the way both you at Pro Football Focus and all of us are going to be able to do this? I'll use your language, uh, Nathan, which is isolation, because we're just going to have a lot more variables at the micro level. How are you thinking about that in the future of analytics in pro football? Yeah, I think technology will have a huge role in that. I think um, having being able to know where a player is at any given moment is definitely helpful. But I think just improving the technology that we have at other levels of play as well is definitely a step that needs to be taken since um, a big part of football is also evaluation of how good we think someone's playing in college, how good we think they're playing in high school. And right now, um, at the college level, we've been grading college teams for four years now. Um, this past year, we've done a little bit of high school for the first time, but that's something that we're looking to expand. But just even being able to have good camera angles at the college level and high school level, it's not brand new technology, but having that more readily available at different levels of football, I think will be necessary to evaluate college players better and having NFL teams start to have a higher success rate and hitting on those college players. Okay, let's move on to a game that really intrigues me, which is the Falcons and Rams game. I mean, I keep thinking that, you know what, somehow, somewhat, you know, the Falcons made it back to the playoffs. You know, one could argue, they look, they didn't win the Super Bowl, but they were a very good team last year. They were within a couple plays of winning the Super Bowl. Am I wrong to think, what are the analytics, what do you guys at Pro Football th- Focus think? Because the Rams have also been a great team this year. They didn't play it as well in the last quarter of the season. But what do you? how do you view the Falcons and Rams game? I think it's definitely a very interesting game. I think the Falcons, um, their offense was kind of out of this world good last year, and I think they've come down to earth a little bit, which is what you could expect. Uh, Matt Ryan when he's not under pressure, had a pass rating of 128 last year. So that was um, very, very good where he's just been really good this year. Um, I don't think the offensive line has helped the Falcons as much this year. Ryan's been under pressure a little more often. And in the run game in particular, their yards before contact per attempt has uh, decreased a bit this year. So the running backs have helped. Um, I think on defense, their front seven has actually improved from last year. Um, Adrian Claiborne, Brooks Reed, players that you didn't really expect to have good years this year, have been playing very well. Um, Grady Jarrett took a big step forward. Um, Deion Jones has become one of the best coverage linebackers. So I think the Falcons, while their offense might not be as good as last year, uh, they've been playing very well, and I think that makes them very evenly matched against 
uh, the Rams team. So you bought into the Rams, you bought into Goff and uh, Gurley, and you think, I mean, you think they're for real, and you think they have a, I don't want to say a legitimate chance, but they have a good chance to beat a quality Falcon team. I would say they have a good chance. I would say this game's pretty close to a toss-up. I think with Goff and the Rams' offense in general, I think it's very interesting to see um, how that offense has changed this year. Um, first off, I think Goff uh, has a lot better talent around him. Uh, he's been under pressure a lot less often this year than he was last year. Our receivers have been dropping less passes, so that um, definitely has helped his numbers look better. Um, Todd Gurley's reemergence has been a huge help. He's probably been the best running back this year. So, um, for one, that gives Goff a weapon to throw it to, but also um, helps their play-action game uh, work well. Uh, they've run play-action more than any other team this year, and when they do, uh, Goff's been averaging 10.6 yards per attempt. So, um, I think scheme-wise and the player-wise, the Rams' offense has been figuring out ways to uh, be successful. So, stylistically, if you had to guess, is this a 30-something to 30-something game, high-scoring game, Falcons at Rams? I think it would be a mid-scoring game since I think these defenses also have been playing well. Um, I think probably what will make the biggest difference is how well the Falcons are able to run the ball against the Rams. I would say the biggest weakness for either team so far this year has been uh, the Rams' run defense, which they do have Michael Brockers and uh, Aaron Donald, someone who's been – very, very, very good against the pass, but has just been good against the run. But outside of those two players, they haven't been doing as well, where uh, Freeman has been excellent most of the season, but the past month hasn't been running as well. So um, if the Falcons are able to run the ball, I think they probably have the advantage in this one. But um, both teams have good defenses as well, so I would say this is probably an average scoring game rather than a shootout. It's fascinating to me that you've talked about, you know, at least performing-wise, you've talked about Matt Ryan and Jared Goff, two of the better quarterbacks in the league, and you've talked about one of the key linchpins of the game is actually the running game and not less and less so the passing game. That's interesting. Let's move on now maybe to the another game, which is an intriguing game at some level, which is the Bills-Jaguar. Maybe just from an analytics perspective, let me just ask you, are the Bills the worst playoff team? Are they the worst team analytically in the playoffs right now? Or are we mistaken that maybe, you know, I know they just, I don't say snuck in. They they went to the playoffs. Yeah. They won. The Titans lost. Or the Titans won. The Ravens lost. The Bills are in the playoffs. Are they the worst team in the playoffs? I would probably give the Titans that edge, but it's in between those two teams, I'd say. I think the Bills do have a slight advantage over Tennessee just because of uh, how good the secondary has been playing this year. I think Tredavious White deserves a rookie of the year with how well he's been playing at cornerback all season long. Um, he hasn't allowed more than four catches in a game in two of the past four games. He hasn't even allowed a catch. And then both of their safeties have been among the league's best among safeties, both at intercepting the ball and breaking up passes. So I give the Bills the edge there, but I do think uh, teams like the Chargers and Ravens uh, would probably give uh, Jacksonville a better matchup in this upcoming game. So you like Jacksonville in this game? I think so, yeah. I think Jacksonville's defense will be too much for the Bills. I think uh, they'll be able to stop the run. I think the Jacksonville's uh, cornerbacks have the advantage over all of the Bills' wide receivers. But I do think if the Bills do find a way to win, they'll be able to exploit the matchup between uh, Cam Robinson and Jerry Hughes since Robinson uh, has been Jacksonville's worst pass blocker this year where 
uh, Hughes has been the Bills' best pass rusher. So um, Robinson's allowed 12 tips this year, which is the most among tackles. So um, if there is one matchup to exploit, it's that one since uh, that's a big mismatch that they have. How about a strategy for the Bills of just, you know, stop the run and make Blake Bortles beat you, and he may throw as many balls to the Buffalo Bills as he does to his own receivers? Yeah, I think Bortles is interesting since uh, he has been playing better this year than he has in past years. The big thing is uh, how well he plays under pressure, which I know we've mentioned for a couple quarterbacks now, but Bortles, the difference between him under pressure and not under pressure is probably bigger than most quarterbacks, so... Um, I think the big difference will be uh, pressure, which that matchup's the one to take advantage of. So if Hughes is able to have a big game, then that'll make Bortles make some bad throws, which that could be the difference in the game where um, if Robinson is able to get the best of that matchup, then I think Bortles will just play mistake-free football. It'll be a field position kind of game. Uh, Fournette, while not playing as well as some of the other rookie running backs, still plays well. So I think Fournette... Um, will still be able to run as long as they can keep the game close. I just haven't seen. Is LaShawn McCoy able to play? He hurt his ankle, I know, in that last game. was I don't know if he was carted off, but have you seen an update on that? I haven't seen an update. I don't think there is an official yes or no either way, but I think even if he does or does not play, Jacksonville's run defense has been playing so well that I don't know how much of an impact he'd be able to have. So let's now move on to, I guess, what many people would consider the marquee game of the of the play of the wild card game. Although it might be Falcons and Rams, but Panthers at Saints. So this is an intriguing game. I mean, the Saints have had success against the Panthers this year. Uh, beat them twice. Um, I've always said, you know, it's always a scary playoff proposition to play at the Saints. So how do you view analytically and the matchup wise the Panther at Saint game? I think it's interesting looking at their last two matchups just because the Saints have been able to win in different ways both games. Uh, the first one in Week 3, uh, Drew Brees had a big game, especially throwing to Michael Thomas. Uh, the offensive line did a great job of keeping Brees clean. Um, both their cornerbacks for the Saints, uh, P.J. Williams and Ken Crowley, had impressive games. Um, Cam Newton really didn't play well that matchup, but McCaffrey was able to have some nice plays. But in Week 13... Um, it was really the running backs for the Saints who had huge games. Um, Alvin had uh, two touchdowns, 60 yards rushing, another 60 receiving. Uh, the defense wasn't as dominant in that game, but Cam played a bit better. But I think the biggest takeaways are Michael Thomas played pretty well in both games, where uh, Marshawn Lattimore actually missed both games. So uh, that might actually push the advantage in the Saints' favor a little bit more than the past two games. So as you're thinking, maybe in the last minute or so that we have with you this morning, again, we're talking to Nathan Jonke. Nathan's the director of analytics at Pro Football Focus. Uh, Nathan, as uh, we think about the, let's say, the totality of the NFL playoffs, any surprises you're predicting for the playoffs? Like are the, you know, if I told you right now it's going to be the Steelers and the Patriots and the AFC, let's say maybe the Eagles and the Vikings and the NFC, is that how, how much of a lock is that? Or any, what are the biggest surprises you expect that we might see from an analytics perspective in the NFL playoffs this year? I would say the AFC is probably a bit more of a lock. Um, just because of how big the gap is between the Patriots and Steelers compared to the rest of the AFC. I think where you'll see the surprises is in the NFC, just because I don't think there's a huge gap between the top team in the conference remaining and the worst team in the conference remaining. 
I think all of them have a lot of strengths and not very many weaknesses. Um, if I had to pick a team that uh, could surprise out of this wild card round, it would probably be the Saints. Um, for one, because they're in the NFC, but two, I think they have the fewest weaknesses out of um, all of these wild card teams. I think their biggest weakness is probably they only have uh, two good receiving options, which they're both really good receiving options, and that hasn't caused them much problems this year. But if a team is able to stop both of them, then I could see the Saints uh, passing game running into some problems. But when you look across the board, pass game, run game, uh, pass defense, run defense, I think the Saints are probably the most complete wild card team uh, that could make a run past the divisional round. Well, Nathan, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Uh, Nathan is the Director of Analytics at Pro Football Focus, where he's worked for over seven years. So, Nathan, uh, thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Shane, we're going to come back in the last half hour. We're going to talk about each of the games. We also, I've got some tennis, got some hockey, got some NBA stuff to talk about. So this has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. We've had, this has been the first three quarters of our show, and this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We had two great guests this morning. We had Stephen Godfrey, who was talking to us about NCAA football, and of course, we just finished with Nathan Jonke from Pro Football Focus. So we've talked about the NCAA, we've talked about the NFL. Um, we also have two other co-hosts of the show, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner. We're actually fortunate, although he's not here in the studio with us. We have Cade Massey on the phone. Cade, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good, guys. How are y'all? Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. And, uh, you know, I wanted to start off with where the show started. And it's with, I'm expecting an apology from you, is where I'm starting <laughs> right now. So I'd like to hear your reaction to, as I predicted on Wharton Moneyball a couple weeks ago, what happened. UCF, the true national champion, beating Auburn. <laughs> as someone, as the Massey of Massey Peabody, I'd love to hear your thoughts before we even get into what happened in the two games, that the two actual BCS games. I'd love to hear your thoughts on your updated view, if any, of UCF. Yeah. I, it's definitely fair. I mean, you're not going to get an apology from me. It's definitely <laughs> fair. Um, because, you know, I, 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 was, I was worked up about it from, like, week one. I, you know, we knew that either – we strongly suspected UCF or USF would make it through the season undefeated. They would be in a, in a New Year's Six game. They'd be pitted against some better team, and there'd be a lot of hype about them. So I was shorting, I was shorting that group of five team, whoever it was, back in August. And we liked them. We liked them to lose about two or three more than the market did. So we thought it was about a two touchdown game, and they ended up taking it two touchdowns the other direction. And they looked like they belong. There's just no question about it. So it, it I mean, it leads you to. It, it raises a very fair question: Do we have them wrong? Um, entirely possible. We might have had them wrong. It's also possible Auburn didn't want to be there, and UCF had a big, much more motivation for the game. And that's the, that's the hell of it when it comes to this stuff. One game. What can we really say about one game? But we're on the wrong side of it. We talked big, and we're on the wrong side of it. No question. So how do, how do you like the suggestion that Shane made earlier in the show, which is as follows? Put a tax, let's call it a tax, on the teams that make it to the BCS. Make them play 
let's say, the teams that didn't make it. So let's give, let's make, let's call a week zero in the NCAA. Let's get UCF to get a shot against one of the top four teams to start out next season. Because, you know, we can't do this four to six year scheduling thing that they do right now. What would be your reaction to having the BCS teams having to play, let's call it the near BCS teams from the previous season? Well, anything anything like that some some version of that i think sounds great the the details are difficult obviously but um sure why not and the the main thing that that would do i think is to give those group of five teams a, a platform to make a case for themselves because ucf again something we knew from before the season even starting was that they weren't going to get in ucf or usf they, those teams didn't have a chance no chance week zero because one they're a group of five, so they, it's an uphill battle. But but two, they didn't have the schedule that would have allowed them to demonstrate that they were as good. The other thing was they weren't good the previous year. They weren't good enough the previous year to get into the psyche, the national psyche. And it kind of seems that it's not rational or fair, but it seems that, you, that a group of five team has to be good the previous year in order to be given any shot at all in a given year. So let me ask you the natural follow-up question. If UCF goes undefeated, Next season, and I haven't looked at their schedule yet. You could, we could look at it. Are they now in the BCS? Oh, I, said, I mean, clearly they're going to be in the conversation. We saw it for years with Boise State, where once they demonstrated that they were capable of going undefeated, knocking off some big teams like Oklahoma, people will put them in the conversation. Whether they're all going to get all the way to the top four, I don't know. I don't I mean I, I have zero qualms. For setting, setting aside how wrong we were about the Auburn game. I mean, you really are going to make the case for UCF needing to be in the, one of the top four teams in the country? I, I really, really don't have an issue with them not being included this year. But I, I do think that if they have another year like this, oh, absolutely. And we've seen it, we've seen it, and we've talked about it exactly this thing happening all season long. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess this sort of like this proposal of this kind of week zero, almost like exhibition between. The, the, the sort of top teams would just be a way of kind of codifying that kind of emergence into the national psyche in a way that actually relates to the season at hand as opposed to the next season. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. we know politically it's probably never going to happen, but it, you know, I think it would help. Yeah, I, that, that it's, a, it's a neat idea and not one I've heard talked about before. So let me ask you another question. So one of the things we also talked about in the first half hour, and I was hoping you would be on to talk about this, was two teams that are, I guess, near and dear to my heart, but for different reasons, won the last game of the NFL season, and it cost them draft pick order. So one was my Buccaneers, who won and beat the Saints the last game of the season. Now, maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, they dropped from fifth to seventh in the draft. The 49ers, the magic of Garoppolo, won the last game of the season. They ended up 6-10 and 10 instead of one of the – would have been six teams at 5-11. and 11. So they're going to be ninth or 10th instead of maybe 5th or 6th. How much – I know this is one of – this was part of your dissertation where I know you did work with Dick Thaler on this. How much is going from 5th to 7th or 5th to ninth and 10th? I know I've, I printed out the chart. I know what the classic chart says. It's basically two, 300 points, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 picks further down in the draft. How much did those teams hurt themselves by winning the last week of the season? Yeah, it's, it's a substantive drop. When you're at that, t- at that point in the order, the, the change in market value is pretty steep. So, I mean, whether whether or not you think they should use the pick or trade down, it's a valuable pick to have if you're sitting at fifth. 
versus say ninth. I mean, that's a big percentage drop when you when you do that. So, you know, now it's really hard. there's no guarantee that the player you pick is going to be better, but on average, the player you pick is going to be better. So there's there's a real cost there. Now, how do you pit that against the psychology of going into the off season with a win whenever you've had a real tough season? I, I don't know. You're the momentum guy, Eric. You're, you're, you, 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 and I think I think that's a you don't need momentum when you've got Jimmy Garoppolo. Is my argument? But, well, <laughs> I, well, it is how it is how I separated the two. I said I can completely understand from the 49ers' point of view why you know in some sense now I mean Garoppolo's still undefeated. He played extremely well again. That I can understand. The Buccaneers, I just couldn't quite understand why they were motivated to win that game. It actually showed me more about the Saints, who at that time, when that game was kicked off, they were still playing for... They could have lost that division if the if the Panthers had won, and they, the Saints were still alive for a better seed. So I was actually... It told me more about the Saints than it did about the Bucks, but I just didn't understand why the Bucks won that game. That's interesting. Well, let me just say, anecdotally, this is this is strictly anecdotally, I have been shocked at how powerful the bowl win was for the Texas Longhorns and Longhorn fans. So the Longhorns went into, you know, it's a minor bowl against a, a Missouri team that no one really cared about, and they were 6-6 six and six going in, hadn't played in a bowl game in, in four years, hadn't won a game in six or seven, a bowl game in six or seven years, won the game. And came out of it feeling so differently about the season, the off season, everything than if they had lost. I mean, it's I am shocked by how much difference it makes. Now, you know, it's college, it's one game, it's I'm very biased, but I'm I'm very thankful for that silly little nothing win for for the off season. And I, it's hard not to imagine it makes a difference in the program. And I look, the Bucks would have lost if the Bucks had lost the game to the Saints. The Bucks would have lost their last five games all by less than one score. So trust me, uh, brutal. They, that's brutal. So they would have had a, a much, I agree with you, a much different offseason. Let me ask you about the two college games that we did see. So what did you see about the Rose Bowl? What was your thought? Were you ever expecting a 54-48 to 48 game there? How did, how did you see Georgia versus Oklahoma? How did you see that game? Well, you don't you don't go in expecting 100 points in college football, and that's that's silly. But we definitely expected a high scoring game. I mean, OU had the has the the nation's number one offense and not much of a defense. And it, I, I didn't know. God knows we had them almost exactly even. I think within half a point of each other. So we would have believed anything almost. Uh, um, on the personal front, it was so much fun to pull against Oklahoma. I rediscovered how fun it is. <laughs> you know, if your team is not relevant. Pulling against your least favorite team is almost as much fun, um, and it was just a hell of a game. I mean, it's impossible not. And there's such different styles. You know, Mayfield is the kind of guy that you love to have on your team, and you hate when he's on the other guy's team. And and he, and he was a pleasure. He's to a watch polarizing figure. He, he is a polarizing figure. But I'll talk about the way he plays on the field. But you know, you just don't see the game these days is so, is so um, pass oriented, and you don't see these great running games very much. And to have these big runs one after another from two different running backs, I mean, it was just such so much fun to watch. Um, and then I'm happy about it because the way it went. But uh, that that game, I, I think, is almost exactly how we expected it to play out in some ways. I mean, you wouldn't have expected that much drama and that many points, but you expected drama and points in that game. Actually, Stephen Godfrey brought up an excellent point during the second half hour, which is not surprising to you, probably, that he brought up an excellent point. Um, Oklahoma only actually scored one offensive touchdown after the halftime. 
They had 31 yeah. points at the half. They scored one touchdown, one defensive score, and thanks to Matt Datz pointing out to me, they only scored three points in two possessions in overtime starting from, what is it, the 25-yard line. So, I mean, Georgia's yeah. defense really came on strong. Yeah, the, the the overtime, I think, was the most surprising thing. Um, but uh, I agreed fully. And, I, I, you know, you see that happen and you think, well, Georgia adjusted. It took them a while to figure out and they adjusted. I, you know, I don't know whether to take it at face value, but Kirby Smart said, the, the coach, Georgia's coach said that they didn't make adjustments, that they kept on doing what they were doing. The players just kind of settled in and played harder and played stronger. But, you know, is that even – that's shocking if that's true. Yeah. Um, but that's what he claimed. What was shocking, actually, was Cade's question to uh, Stephen Godfrey, when Stephen agreed with Cade's question, which is, why did it take him a half? Like, haven't they been watching film for the last four weeks? Like, what? Why did they even need a half to adjust? Like, well, no, did- I mean, if 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 Cade's right and it, or and it wasn't actually a change in scheme, but just sort of like a settling down of players' psyche or something like that, then that maybe does make a little bit more sense. Right, big big stage. Hadn't seen that kind of offense before. You could imagine that there's some adjustment needed. So I would assume, by the way, after now the Sugar Bowl, after Alabama. Let's call it throttled is not a bad word. Clemson, I assume there's not much change in your belief that Alabama's still the best team, and how do you see them in their matchup with Georgia? So we had them about a field goal better than everybody else coming into the playoffs, and everybody else was within a point. So we don't have updated numbers, but um, you know Georgia beating Oklahoma is pretty impressive. Alabama's win's probably more impressive, but that involves some turnover stuff. So I'm not going to I'm not going to expect it to move too much. My understanding is the market opened at four, which is you know real close to where we are. So that's that's but you know a four point game anything can happen. Um, so we're still we're still there. We're still three four points that kind of thing. How do you see the game going? I mean we you know we asked. Uh... Stephen about this, his comment was, you're going to see what, he didn't use the word slobber knock, but he used the word, you know, we're going to see a defensive battle, field position battle, you know, kind of like. 14-10, I think, was was roughly his prediction. Is that the way you see the game as well? Well, I think everybody's scarred from a couple of years of Alabama LSU and and expecting another one of those versions. It's hard to imagine much different than that. I mean, the the, there's got. I've got to believe there's an advantage that Jalen Hurts has from having been there last year. I mean, as a true freshman, he was in this game. He played really well. He took him all the way down the field for what would have been a game-winning drive if if the defense hadn't given one up. You know, immediately afterwards at Clemson. Um, now Jake Fromm gets to play the role of the freshman quarterback on the other side. But you gotta you gotta like someone who's been there. Before. I believe you gotta like someone who's been there before. That said. With those running backs, he doesn't have to do it himself, right? So he can lean on those guys. Can those guys run against that front? I mean, the Alabama D is so different from the Oklahoma D. We're talking about the number one defense in the country. Um, Alabama's been hurt through much of the year, and they're getting some of those. They've been getting some of those guys back. He knows. He knows Kirby Smart. He raised Kirby Smart. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Godfrey. One, I would defer to Godfrey. He knows the SEC better than I do, and. Um, and that sounds about right. I think that sounds utterly right. I have a hard time saying it because I want Georgia to win so badly. Can you, can, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody other than Alabama win this thing? Yeah, no, it, it definitely would. Do you see there being, and this is the last question I want to ask you about college football, and then we want to move to the pros a little bit. Um, how do you see, is there, you know, the stat I put out in the first uh, half hour, which Stephen Godfrey debunked as being worthless, is that Saban is 11-0 against former assistant coaches of his. And then, he, you know, uh, Stephen started going into, yeah, but you're counting games against, 
like Jim McElwain when he was at Colorado State and this and that. You know, when you actually look at it, how do you view, is there any, how do you see familiarity playing a role or not particularly? If anything, you really would have expected to go the other way. And I've got to believe it's an advantage. Kirby Smart would have an advantage playing against Alabama than, say, um, uh, than Oklahoma's coach would have, the new, the new coach. I just blanked on um, because he knows the system. So I, 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 it's a great call to unpack the thing and look at things like who they're actually talking about because I, I, it's hard to imagine. It's such a, you know, it's, there's a good narrative for you that, 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 that sells, sells stories, but it doesn't make a lot of sense that he would own his assistance in that way. you got, you got to believe, relative to somebody who doesn't know the system, a former coach has to have an advantage. Right. Well, there has to be some point. I mean, we, we might agree it's not yet, although 11-0 still 11-0. At some point, we'd have to look at how much, if you'd like, What's the expected number of wins, which might be ten point seven, and therefore yeah, eleven or no exactly. is not that impressive. But also, what's the mechanism? I mean, why would that? Why would that be? The the prior would be so so much stronger in the other direction. Why would a a coach have an advantage over a former assistant relative to the former assistant have an advantage playing against a system he knew for years? That's that's certainly fair. So we've been talking about we're, we're talking with Cade Massey, obviously our co-host here on Morton Moneyball. If you want to join the conversation with Cade, Shane, or myself, please call us at one eight four four Warden. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So we've been talking about college football, but of course there are some big pro games coming up this weekend, and this is the time where we go to our Wharton Moneyball matchup. Moneyball matchups. You know, whenever I hear that music, Cade, that means it's NFL time. Um, I'm actually semi-excited by some of the games this weekend in the pro level. Um, just for our fans out there and for you, Cade, since you may not have it in front of you, let me just read off the four games and the spreads in the games, and Cade would be might as well have you go first, get your reaction to the games. So the first game we have is Titans at Chiefs. The At the moment, the Chiefs are favored at home by nine. We have the Falcons at the Rams. We have the Rams favored at home by six and a half. We have the Bills at the Jaguars. And we have the Jaguars favored at home by nine. And we have the Panthers at Saints and the Saints favored at home by six and a half. And, and Kate, before you pick, just so our Moneyball fans know, nine-point spreads and six-and-a-half-point spreads in the NFL are pretty big. They're yeah. like, you know, 80% and 70% win probabilities. So how do you view any of those four games and the spreads catch your eye, Cade? Well, the one where we have the biggest difference of opinion, Massey Peabody, is the Titans-Chiefs game, the first game of the weekend. We... You know, much of the season we liked Casey. Early in the season, we had him flying up our board. But going into the playoffs, we had them only the 11th best team in the league. And Tennessee, even though they're in a kind of don't deserve to be their number 15 spot, um, is not that much below Kansas City. And so we we would make the the spread something like five points. So we're looking at almost a four point edge um, versus the line. So if we were if, if if we had to put money on a game this weekend it would be tennessee 
take Tennessee in the points. So talk about a little bit how Massey Peabody deals with, I'm not going to use the word momentum, I'll just say non-stationarity. So, you know, the Chiefs certainly started out hot this season. No one was hotter than the Chiefs, including beating the Patriots in mm-hmm. Foxborough, I believe. I remember something about that. Yeah, something that Shane certainly remembers something about that. Then they went through an awful stretch, and then they seemed to kind of right the ship. Let's imagine if we were talking about a hidden Markov model, hot, cold, hot, let's say. Can Massey Peabody or any system out there kind of represent, let's call it, the degree of non-stationarity we might be seeing with the Chiefs? Well, you you need to. It's a very important part of a model is to is to 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 consider how much weight you want to give to the distant past versus the recent past. Very important parameter, and uh, we estimate that as carefully as we can. And so we do count recent performance more than distant past performance. But inevitably, people see more of that non-stationarity than there actually is. I mean, there's so much noise in these football yeah. outcomes. People, what's the saying? Teams are never as good or as bad as they looked last week because it just bounces around a lot, and you can't read as much into it as you want to read into them. And I'm guilty of that myself. I was talking earlier in the show about how the Rams have lost their last couple of games, and that's a really bad look for them going into the playoffs. But of course, it could be it could mean nothing. Yeah, you look. We've looked really hard at those numbers, trying to trying to trying to find can you find any can you can show any evidence that late season performance affects playoff performance above and beyond what our power rankings are does winning the last game help or winning two of the last three or losing the last four and it, you just can't find it i mean it, once you have a power ranking on a team what they've done in the last week or two of the season has no predictive value for what happened yeah i've heard that. you say that before and i absolutely believe that so that's good for our listeners so uh, shane which uh any of the games catch your eye here yeah i uh, i'm I, I think the Sa- panthers are going to upset the saints i'm gonna i'm gonna go in on that i know it's somewhat of a surprising prediction but i i just i i guess i'm going to completely undo what i what we were just talking about and say the panthers have looked really good <laughs> recently and i i think um i yeah i've i've Shane, I'm a what believer. difference does it make that they are division rivals and this played twice this year um i think it I mean, I, I think in general that makes a that makes a big difference, right? Because I think there there's an extra potentially an extra intensity to the game, and also there's a lot of you know experience. You know, they they can kind of go back over a lot of very specific tape and stuff like that. So I think it makes a big difference, and I think, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I just kind of have a feeling that Carolina is going to figure out how to contain the running backs of New Orleans, and uh, I think it'll probably be a relatively high scoring game. But I think Cam Newton's going to kind of win in a showdown. It would be an interesting way, in some sense, to measure coaching quality, because one could argue that this is where coaching could make a big difference. Like, who can scheme up a better way, given you've got not just yeah. like, you know, it's not transitivity film. You've got A playing B twice this year. It's not from eight years ago or even last year. The Saints and the Panthers played twice this year. So I, it would be interesting to go back yeah. and look. Matter of fact, when teams play a third time, it would be interesting to see, like, how good is Bill Belichick when teams play a third? I'm not saying I know I, I, the answer, I, I, but it would no, be an interesting. I think I metric. saw a stat like somehow when when two when teams go up against each other in the playoffs, having already played them twice, uh, at least teams that have gone two and zero yep. against in the regular season are something like six and three in the playoff matchups. So that's not much more than I would have guessed. Yeah. That, that's probably about right, maybe just given their strength parameters. So we only have a few seconds left here on Wharton Moneyball, so I'll just give my quick pick. I'm still going 
the team I'm still buying, I've been bullish on all season. I, I, they've righted the ship the last six Bills. weeks of the season. No, <laughs> not the Bills. Although Kate and I both do have an affinity for the Bills, and our, our, our mutual friend Jeff Argus, I'm sure Kate has been following, has been posting more than anybody could imagine about his Bills being back. But actually, um, it's the Falcons. Um, I'm, buy- I'm buying the Falcons. I think they're going to go in and beat the Rams. I think the wow. Falcons feel fortunate to be in the playoffs, and um, I think they played well. They, I think they won five of their last six games. They played well the second half of the season, so that's who I'm going with. So this has been a complete two hours here on Morton Moneyball. I'd like to thank my co-host, uh, Cade Massey, for calling in. I'd like to thank Shane Jensen for joining me live and in studio this morning. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Thanks to our associate producer, Danielle Bruno, for keeping us on time and on schedule. This has been two hours of Morton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide and we will see you next week wednesday 8 to 10 live here on wharton moneyball